today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking a little deeper at the papacy with Father William McGilvery. Last time, we saw that Jesus set up Peter as his vicar on earth. But what about after St. Peter? There are tons of theories about who holds authority within the Catholic Church. Is the Pope one of multiple patriarchs who need to share power? Or is he the supreme, absolute monarch of the entire Catholic Church? And how can we use scripture and tradition to answer this? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all of the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a small one-time or a monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father William McGilvery for episode number 16 of our apologetic series. Father McGilvery, great to have you back again. And we are continuing on with where we left off last time about the papacy. Last time we looked at the primacy of St. Peter, basically setting up the idea that the church is not a democracy, that the church is not run by committee or commission or everyone's own personal relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, but that there is one person at the head of the church that Christ founded, and that was Peter. Today, we will look at whether or not the current Pope and all of the Popes in between St. Peter and Pope Francis right now continue that tradition and have that same authority, power, etc. Is that about right? That's correct, yes. Okay. So where would you like to begin? How do we, how would you like to begin this argument? Well, I'd like to take a similar approach to last time where before we actually consider the historical evidence, we inquire into the fittingness or the suitability that things be a certain way. Um, And so I would start off by making the argument that if, you know, granting everything that we saw yesterday, granting that um, our Lord clearly did give Peter a true primacy of jurisdiction, over the entire church, including the other apostles. Um, so there was this monarchical structure uh, with which our, our Lord, um, you know, uh, endowed the church. Um, granted all that, um, is it not reasonable to think that that um, monarchical structure would endure? Um, it would seem rather strange for our Lord to set up something very specific um, you know, you've got, uh, St. Peter, then the 12, the, the other 11 apostles, and then there, you know, our Lord also chooses 72 disciples in the gospel. So he has a, a definite structure, um, which he's set up. It would be very strange if all of that was changed. Um, if that was only supposed to last for the lifetime of the apostles, and then our Lord had made no provision whatsoever for the continuation of, of those powers. Um, and so we're going to argue that, um, well, just as our Lord, um, we can see that our Lord did wish, for example, the episcopate to continue. Um, we see, as I mentioned last time, for example, St. Paul, who is an apostle, choosing collaborators, Timothy, Titus, and then um, ordering them to confer, um, you know, apostolic powers, uh, priestly or, or episcopal powers upon um, other men. Um, so we see already evidence in scripture for a continuation of the hierarchy established by our Lord. Um, and so the question is, you know, if, if that's true as regards um, other elements of the hierarchy, like like Episcopal powers, uh, why not uh, specifically the uh, primacy of Peter? Why shouldn't that continue as well? Um, and 
just to insist upon this this truth that um the, the the hierarchy did continue. This was not the the, the uh, structure established by our Lord was not going to be replaced by something completely different, like a a democracy, um, some kind of egalitarian society. Um, we can look at, for example, the letters of um, Saint Ignatius of Antioch. Um, so he was the bishop of Antioch, uh, martyred around the year 110 A.D. So his writings are very early, uh, the very beginning of the second century. Um, and we find all throughout his, his writings, his letters to the various churches, um, that uh, everywhere there is the same hierarchical structure. In each diocese, there's a bishop who's in charge. Um, and then under, underneath him, there's a presbyterate or a kind of, you know, college of priests. And then underneath them, there are the deacons. Um, and, and if you'll allow me to quote uh, just a few of these passages, this is actually uh, taken from my notes for the previous conference, but I think it's applicable to this. Um, so he writes to, um, for example, in, in his letter to the Philadelphians, he writes, there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup to show forth the unity of his blood, one altar, as there is one bishop along with the presbytery and deacons. And he writes to the Ephesians, your justly renowned presbytery worthy of God is fitted as exactly to the bishop as the strings are to the harp, um, meaning that the presbytery is, is subject to the bishop and, and follows his directions. So one bishop, he's in charge of the presbytery um, and the deacons. Um, and he, he also writes to the Smyrnaeans, uh, let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. So it's clear that that there is a well-defined system of authority, um, and that structure in each diocese is monarchical. There is the one bishop who is the authority. Um, so th that proves both that the um, uh, you know our Lord's intention was for a hierarchy to endure. Um, but also it shows that in each, in each diocese, there's only one who is in charge. Um, so why wouldn't we see the same structure as well apply to the universal church? Why wouldn't there be one in charge of the universal church, which would be simply a continuation of what our Lord had already uh, begun, what he'd already established in, in Peter. So why wouldn't Peter's primacy continue? Right. So looking at it just from a purely logical standpoint of this is what our Lord set up. This is the way that it was happening in the early church with the other bishops. Therefore, it makes sense for it to be applied to uh, the Petrine primacy as well, or the or the seat that Peter was holding. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And could I just mention one more thing about the, sure. the fittingness of, of this? Um uh, you know, in, in each diocese, the bishop is the representative of Christ. That's, in fact, explicitly what St. Ignatius of Antioch says, is you should look upon the bishop as you look upon Christ himself. Um, but it would be logical that there be one for, uh, upon whom the whole church could look on and see Christ. Um, and that's another reason why, um, you know, God, God tends to prefer uh, monarchical structures because, and especially in a, in a society like the church where um, power doesn't come from the people from below, it rather comes from on high from our Lord uh, himself, who's God and who communicates authority uh, from above. And, you know, it's, it's obvious that God or our Lord Jesus Christ is, is more aptly represented by one person who, who is his vicar, his representative, who governs in his name. Um, that in fact corresponds to the unity of, of God's essence. There's only one God. And so, um, his, his unity, his unicity is well reflected in, in, in a monarchical, monarchical form of government. Um, 
but uh, furthermore, uh, or let's say on the other hand, if you have the highest element in, in your government being some kind of legislative body comprised of many people, especially if they're popularly elected, what does that governing body represent? It doesn't represent God, it represents the people. Um, that's a representative government. Um, but what's what's essential to understand is that in the church, uh, the governing authority does not represent the people uh, so much as it represents God. And that's why unity is more appropriate. Um, so that's kind of looking at it from sort of the, the negative aspect of it. So coming at it yes. from, the, from the aspect of, well, it, why wouldn't we want it this way? Well, this is, you know, this is what you just answered. Mm-hmm. Let's look at it from the positive aspect yeah. Um, mm-hmm. why is it good that the, the papacy exists in the way it does? Yes. Well, uh, we see already in John, uh, chapter 10 that our Lord says there shall be one flock in one shepherd. Um, and so we would expect, um, that while our Lord, of course, is the, uh, the good shepherd and he doesn't cease to be that when he, when he ascends into heaven, um, there ought to be some representative of our Lord here on earth. Um, we see that, that our Lord confides the sheep to Peter. Um, he becomes, you know, the, uh, shepherd of, of Christ's flock. Um, and that has to endure until the end of time. Um, when our Lord says that there shall be one flock and one shepherd, there's no limit to that. Um, and so that requires that Peter have successors um, who can also be Christ's vicar and, and who can feed the, the flock of Christ in his name. Um, so that's referring to the text in, in the last chapter of St. John's Gospel, um, where our Lord uh, establishes Peter as, as shepherd of his flock. But we can also look at the... Um, uh, what our Lord promised St. Peter in St. Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verse 18 uh, through 20. And we look at that metaphor too, and we find more more positive reasons why um, Peter's primacy must endure in his successors. Um, and it's because uh, our Lord makes Peter the rock, the foundation upon which uh, the whole edifice of his church rests. Um now, if our Lord had meant Peter as an individual and had not intended um, what what he gave to Peter to be uh, given to Peter's successors, um, then you would have this absurdity of a foundation uh, for the church, which lasts only as long as Peter does. And then when Peter dies, all of a sudden the, the church lacks a foundation. Um, that's an absurdity. The foundation must exist as long as the edifice exists, uh, as long as the church exists. And therefore, it must be not not just Peter as this individual, but rather um, Peter as head of the church, the Petrine office, um, which is the foundation of the church and what, which must therefore endure um, and, and abide longer than Peter himself personally does. Um and, you know, same with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Our Lord wouldn't give them to Peter uh, just to take them back when Peter dies. That, that would be silly. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I may, as a final confirmation of this line of argument, if I may uh, bring in as well um, a prophecy from the Old Testament, uh, which I think is pertinent here. Um, uh, so there's there's a passage from the, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37, where, um, well, we read, Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will take of the children of Israel from the midst of the nations, whither they are gone, and I will gather them on every side and will bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land uh, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. 
and they shall no more be two nations, neither shall be div they be divided any more into two kingdoms. And my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my judgments, and shall keep my commandments, and shall do them, and David my servant shall be their prince forever." Um, beautiful passage. It's, it's emphasizing that God is going to restore unity to his people and that unity will be achieved once again through the rule of one. Um, they shall have one king, one shepherd over them, um, who is called in this prophecy, David. Um, now, now who is this, this David? Obviously it's not the historical David. He's not going to, uh, rise from the dead and rule his people again. Um, but rather David is indicating, you know, a certain personality type, if I may say so. Um, the, the historical David is, is like an archetype, archetype of the one who's come after him. Um, kind of as, for example, the prophet Elias or Elijah, as he's sometimes called, he was an archetype or a foreshadowing of John the Baptist. Um, who, who was prophesied to come in the spirit and, uh, and power of Elias and, and who our Lord referred to as, as Elias saying Elias has already come and, and they've done what, what with him, whatever they wanted, meaning they put him to death. Um, so, um, you can have, in other words, you know, people in the old Testament who are said to come back, but in, in the person of someone else who fulfills what, what they prefigured, um, now, now, who is this uh, new David? Obviously, it's it's first and foremost Christ himself. Um, uh, David is certainly a figure of Christ. Um, and this is what, in fact, the angel says to Our Lady uh, at the Annunciation. She says that uh, the Lord God shall give unto him, uh, unto the fruit of thy womb, um, the throne of David his father. So Jesus is going to inherit the throne of David. He will be the new David ruling over his people. Um, and, and of his kingdom, there shall be no end, as the angel says. So it's our Lord, first of all. I, I don't want to, um, I want that to be clear. Um, but remember that our Lord very often associates with himself Peter, as, for example, um, when Peter um, was told to go get the, um, I think it was a stator, which is a piece of Jewish currency from the mouth of the fish and use it to pay the temple tax for our Lord and, and for himself, for Peter. They, they go together. And, you know, our Lord is the good shepherd, but he makes Peter the shepherd. Our Lord is the rock, but he makes Peter the rock. Um, and so here, here too, it, it would seem that Peter um, is symbolized, uh, is foreshadowed by David at the same time as our Lord is. Um, but with this difference, in, in a certain sense, the, the passage applies better to David, uh, or I'm sorry, better to Peter. Because what do we see with, with King David? Um, King David was promised by God. Uh, everlasting successors. Uh, for example, we read in Psalm 88, I have sworn to David, my servant, thy seed will I settle forever, and I will build up thy, thy throne unto generation and generation. Um, so David himself is going to die, but uh, there will always be a descendant, one of his offspring, who will rule over over his um, over his kingdom, who will sit on his throne. Um, and, and we see this prophecy um, fulfilled in that um, while the, you know, the, the northern kingdom of Israel went through all these different dynastic changes, um, one family and then another ruling it, it was always a successor of David who ruled the kingdom of Judah um, all the way until the coming of the, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And so and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, took the Jews captive to Babylon, uh, which is and that that can be seen as kind of a figure of the end of the world. Um, because uh, it's basically symbolic of that. So, so what do we see? Um, David has successors all the way until the destruction of Jerusalem, um, and uh, Peter, who is, uh, you know, obviously in subordination to our Lord, he is kind of the new David. Um, 
he is is promised as well. He's going to have successors um, on his throne um, until the end of time, until the end of the world. Um, that's how I think we should read that that prophecy. Um, very interesting. Yes, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's still kind of a carryover from from what we were talking about last time in terms of this is the symbolism of Peter himself. Before we start to get even more into the rest of the popes and, and the papacy itself. Uh, one question that is interesting and, and has puzzled many, including myself over time, is why is the head of the church, why is the the location of the church, um, the headquarters, so to speak, in Rome, not Jerusalem, not Nazareth, Perhaps. not Capernaum, not, you know, not any of those places yes. down there where our Lord himself lived? Why Rome? Was it practical because of the Romans? Was it, is there some other symbolism or... Um, both, both. So it was practical and symbolic. Um, and, and you're right. This is something that often, you know, we don't hear about, we don't consider. Um, and so I think this is, this is a really exciting thing to talk about. Um, yeah. so why Rome? Why not Jerusalem, as you say? Um, or at least some other place in the Holy Land? Um, well, first of all, the practical reasons, you know, should be clear. Um, we see that, you know, even our Lord himself preferred the large, um, trade cities to be the, the, the basis of his preaching. He, um, preached primarily from Capernaum, um, which was a, a big prosperous trade city in, in, mm. uh, Galilee. He made that the center of his missionary activity. Um, and then that's what the apostles themselves did as well. They, they preferred to go to the large cities. Um, like we can see St. Paul going to Corinth, for example, which was, which is enormous at the time. Um, and, uh, in fact, this is so true that, um, you, I'm not sure if you're aware of the, the, the term for pagan, which we associate with being an idolater, not a Christian, um, right. pagan actually just means someone who lives in the countryside, uh, pagus in Latin is, is countryside. And so a paganus is, is someone who dwells in the country. And because the apostles went straight to the cities and evangelized them first, it was only, you know, centuries later that the people living in the countryside uh, received the gospel. And so there was for a, lo a long time this distinction. The people in the city, uh, they many of them are Christian, but the people who live in the country, they're all still pagans. They're, 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 they're all still unbelievers. Yeah. Um, so, so we see this, uh, that the, the apostles are very practical in this way. And so what would be the city from which you could most effectively, um, propagate the faith? Well, it'd be the capital of the empire. You go there. That's the city with the most influence. And so if you can convert the people in that city to, uh, follow our Lord to the, the Catholic faith, then you can much more easily evangelize all, all the other areas. Um, mm. so that's the practical reason. And, and, and we'll see the same, you know, um, uh, strategy employed throughout the entire history of the church, like St. St. Patrick, when he, uh, wants to convert Ireland, he goes and speaks to the, the, the Kings and, and wishes to convert them and, and countless other missionaries have, have done likewise. Okay. Interesting. So that's the practical reason you said there's also a symbolic reason as well. Absolutely. And, and this is, this is tied into another old Testament prophecy. Um, and, and here, actually, I have to give due credit to do, uh, Dr. Taylor Marshall, um, who writes about this in his book, um, The Eternal City. He's, he's known among traditional circles for infiltration, but he's written other books. And, and this one is um, uh, specifically about the, the primacy of the Pope. Uh, very interesting. Um, and he comments on this um, 
he's just really relating the teachings of church fathers. He comments on um, a prophecy in, in Daniel. It's um, uh, chapter two of, of the book of Daniel, um, where Nabucodonosor, I can't say his name. That, that, um, I mean, no a, one can. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, anyways, he has a dream um, where he sees a statue whose head is of gold. Uh, the breast and arms are of silver. The belly and thighs are of brass. The legs are of iron and the feet are part of iron and part of clay. And then a stone is cut out of a mountain without hands and strikes the feet of the statue resulting in its complete collapse. Um, and in the place of the statue, that stone becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Um, so that's the king's uh, dream. This is this is the king of Babylon that we're talking about. And he summons Daniel, who is a prophet known to be able to interpret dreams. And, and Daniel um, interprets it for him by saying that the um, these four parts of the um, statue um, composed of different types of material, they represent four different kingdoms that succeed each other in time. Um, each one of them is of inferior quality. Um, you know, the first one is of gold. That's that's the the head of gold, and then after it's um, after it's uh, sorry, silver, and then bronze, and then iron. Um, so each one is inferior in quality, even though in fact, in terms of you know their extension and, and military power, they're becoming increasingly powerful, um, and. So he says that, that, in other words, there are, there are four kingdoms that are represented here. But afterwards, he concludes, um, so, uh, but in the days of those kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and his kingdom shall not be delivered up to another people, and it shall break in pieces and shall consume all these kingdoms, and itself shall stand forever. Um, which is obviously a messianic prophecy referring to the, the kingdom of Christ. Um, mm. in fact, you can, you can see why the Jews would have this idea of, uh, the Messiah bringing in a temporal kingdom because, because it is prophecy that, that the kingdom of the Messiah will destroy the existing, um, you know, empire, uh, which, uh, so, so how do we interpret that? Um, which empires are being referred to? Well, um, the interpretation of many of the church fathers, which is the one that you know, Dr. Taylor Marshall presents in his book, um, is that the, um, the first of these empires is the Babylonian one. Um, then the second is uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, then the third is the Greek Empire, um, which which the prophet Daniel notes attains to a, a universality. So we can think of Alexander the Great. It's it's a relatively universal empire. Um, then the fourth and last one is the Roman Empire. Um, these are the four empires which, um, at different points in, in uh, Old Testament history, subjugated the Jews and held them under their rule. Um, and so it's, of course, during the reign of the fourth empire, the Roman Empire, um, that the Messiah is going to come and, and he is going to, um, you know, strike this empire and in doing so reduce the whole, whole, uh, <laughs> um, that, that which all four of these empires represented, which is kind of the power of the world. Um, it's a worldly kingdom opposed to the kingdom of God. All this is going to be crushed, um, by, by our Lord, by his messianic kingdom. Um, and so, well, this is precisely what happens as we see in history. Um, there, so St. Peter is going to bring, uh, Christianity, uh, faith in Christ to Rome. He's going to make Rome the center of, of evangelization. Um, there's going to be a struggle to the death for three centuries. The Roman empire is going to persecute, um, the, the Christian people. 
Um, but uh, eventually Christianity will triumph. You know, first of all, Constantine will declare, um, you know, an edict of tolerance of Christianity in 313. Then, then in a very short space of time, um, the emperor Theodosius in, in 380 is going to make it the uh, official religion of the Roman Empire. Um, but, but in fact, the Roman Empire is in the process now very soon of, of disintegrating um, with the barbarian invasions. So you have in the year 476, um, the last of the Western Roman emperors is deposed by a, a barbarian. Um, and with the decline of the Roman Empire comes the rise of the papacy, um, even temporally, even as a temporal power. Um, already in the year 452, this is before the official end of the, the Western Roman Empire, um, Attila the Hun comes and he's going to sack Rome. And who is it that stops him? It's not whoever was the Roman emperor at the time in the West. Um, it's actually Pope Leo who you know exits the, 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 the gates of Rome and, and goes to confront Attila and tells him to go back. And, and, and miraculously, Attila does. Um, so that you can imagine how that would... Uh, enormously increase the prestige of the popes, um, even in temporal matters. And, and by the year 590, when uh, Pope Gregory the Great becomes pope, um, by that time already the, the pope is, uh, for all practical purposes, the secular ruler in Rome. And, and so the Western Roman Empire is just crumbled, leaving the papacy and, and nothing but the papacy. <laughs> So it's remarkable to see in history how this prophecy is fulfilled. And so that's that's one of the reasons why Peter had to go to Rome. In fact, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy of Daniel. Wow. Do you, kind of an off-the-cuff question, and this is more of an opinion thing than anything else. Uh, maybe there is an answer. I don't know. Do you think Peter knew this? Or do you think do you think he purposefully went to Rome knowing this? Or do you think it was an inspiration from from our Lord, from the Holy Spirit, whatever. That's yeah, an interesting question. I don't know if he had this particular prophecy in mind. Yeah. I think certainly he would have considered the, um, the practical reasons for going there. Um, as we already discussed, it'd be very efficacious for spreading sure. the gospel. And I think also there was a desire in a sense to, you know, take on the, uh, opposing power. Um, as, as we'll mention in just a moment, um, the, the early Christians referred to Rome as Babylon. Um, that is to see, they, they, and that may be evidence, in fact, that they were thinking of this prophecy. It could be. Um, but certainly they saw Rome as the continuation of, let's say, the force of worldliness and evil in the world. Um, Babylon was once that it, it you know, uh, destroyed Jerusalem, um, and, and took the Jews into exile. Um, but then all these other emperors, empires that succeeded Babylon, um, and uh, also subjugated the, the chosen people, they're all seen as, um, kind of the, the world, the devil and the flesh personified. So there would be, I'm sure in the soul of St. Peter, a desire to kind of, uh, yeah. be a David confronting Goliath, if you will. This is, this is, <laughs> you know, Peter going to Rome is like David confronting Goliath and with his, with his little pouch and his, um, five stones, which are the, the five wounds, precious wounds of our Lord. He's going to slay the, the giant and then, you know, wow. uh, lop off, lop off his head with his own sword. That's great. Um, what are what are some other uh, writings, or whether from the church fathers or from scripture itself? Is there anything else that that kind of brings this all home, or is it just kind of these? Well, we think it's this prophecy, and yes, there's a practical reason. But are, is this kind of a well known thing? Are the church fathers talking about it at all? Right. So. Um 
for quite some time, um, Protestants had resisted the idea that uh, St. Peter actually went to Rome at all. They wanted to disprove this idea that the Pope is, is uh, Peter's successor. And so the, the clearest way to do that would be to say that, in fact, Peter never was in Rome to begin with. And they'd point at scripture, for example, and say, look, there's no evidence in scripture. Um, and uh, so we do have... A little bit of evidence in scripture, which I'll, I'll cite in a moment. Um, lots of evidence from the church fathers and as well from archaeology, uh, to the point that, um, you know, no one really contests the point anymore. Um, I, I'm going to give right now a quotation from Harnack, who we've, we've quoted before. He's a rationalist, uh, biblical sco scholar. And he says, um, Peter's martyrdom at Rome was attacked at one time as the result of the a priori prejudices of the Protestants and later as a result of the a priori prejudice of the cri critics. But that both were an error is now clear as day to every scholar who doesn't deliberately blind himself to facts. Um, so he's saying you've, you've got to be blind to deny this. Um, but for for the sake of our listeners, uh, and because it's interesting in itself, uh, we'll go through the evidence. Um to begin with, with scripture, um, we look at the first letter of St. Peter, um, and he writes in, in 1 Peter 5.15, The church that is in Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth my son Mark. Um, so this indicates that Peter himself is writing from Babylon, which, as we already mentioned in, in, in the lingo of uh, the early Christians, is code for Rome. Um, and this... Uh, jives very well with um, other things that we know about, um, uh, well, St. Peter and St. Mark and their relationship, um, because uh, we are told by St. Irenaeus of Lyon um, and by Clement of Alexandria that Mark um, was a disciple of St. Peter and basically acted as a scribe. Um, this is the same St. Mark who composed the, the gospel of, of St. Mark. Um, so St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who was uh, bishop of that city um, and writing around the year 190 AD, he, he writes, um, so Matthew also issued a, a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Um so that's that's strong evidence, first of all, that Peter was in Rome, and also that there's this link between Peter and Mark. It just corroborate, corroborates, I'm sorry, the biblical citation. Um, and then Clement of Alexandria writes uh, in the year 200, roughly, um, when Peter preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that Mark, who had been a long time his follower and who remembered his sayings, should write down what had been proclaimed. Um, so we find that record, recorded in Eusebius's History of the Church, um, that, that quotation from Clement of Alexandria. Interesting. So um, there's that. That's the evidence from Scripture, that, that brief line of St. Peter where he mentions writing from Babylon and Mark salutes you, uh, you know, says hello to you. <laughs> um, but uh, we have further, further evidence from the fathers um, besides the two that I quoted. Um, even as early as um, the year 110 AD, St. Ignatius of Antioch, the, the martyr that we've talked about before, um, he writes a letter to the Romans where he says, uh, not as Peter and Paul did, do I command you, um, implying that Peter and Paul had been there in Rome um, and had given commands, had ruled the, the Romans. Um, uh, we have 
Also, once again, Irenaeus of Lyon, I'll just, even though we've quoted him already on this subject, there's another quote that's, that's worth um, reading off. He says, since it would be too long to enumerate the succession of all the churches, we shall point out here the succession of the bishops of the greatest and most ancient church known to all, founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority. Um, so that might be jumping the gun a, a bit. You, you see that he's already talking about, um, you know, the, the primacy of the Roman pontiff, um, who succeeds to Peter. But, but, um, I'm bringing that up now because it's, it's also evidence for the fact that Peter and Paul, um, were at Rome and they organized the church there. Um, Tertullian, he says around the year 280, if you are near Italy, you have Rome, where authority is at hand for us too. What a happy church that is on which the apostles poured out their whole doctrine with their blood, where Peter had a passion like that of our Lord, where Paul was crowned with the death of John, um, by, that is John the Baptist, by being beheaded. Um, and then finally, last one I'll quote for you um, on this subject. Optatus, who is, uh, I believe, a church father um, in Africa, North, northern Africa, writing around the year 367. Um, in, um, he's, he's combating the Donatist schism, so he's writing to the schismatics, and he says, You cannot deny that you are aware that in the city of Rome, the Episcopal chair was given first to Peter, the chair in which Peter sat, the same who was head. That is why he is also called Kevas of all the apostles the one chair in which unity is maintained by all. Hmm. So these early writings from the very first generations of the church, they all seem to suggest that Peter was there, that he set up the church in Rome. And, and it is interesting when you go into some of this uh, early, I don't want to call it archaeology, but but history study of, of these writings, there's a lot of things that are just kind of assumed that the readers would know. Um, mm -hmm. if you're reading it in that time, you just, uh, yeah, of course, everyone knows that Peter is in Rome. Well, for us, 2000 years later, almost 2000 years later, we, we would really want to have that kind of detailed information. They don't bother to put it in there because they're not writing it for us. 2000 years later, they're writing it for the people at the time who would all know this stuff. Absolutely. So that's why we just see these, these, uh, statements kind of in passing. Um, it's not something that had to be proven. It was just something that would be referred to uh, on as the occasion required it. Um, but but uh, I think it might be good as well just to talk a little bit about the archaeology, um, if you don't mind, uh, what, yeah. what that has to say about this subject um, to kind of close off the, the topic. Um, so um, obviously what we all think about is the, uh, the famous Scavi, ex uh, um, how to say it, the um, excavations under Rome, under St. Peter's Basilica. Um, so the tradition is that that St. Peter, after being martyred, um, under the Emperor Nero, he was crucified upside down as St. Jerome records um, in the Circus of Nero. He was afterwards buried on uh, the Vatican Hill in a, you know, a, a pre-existing a pre cemetery or pagan ne necropolis. Um, he was just given kind of a poor man's burial because that's all that could be done at the time. Um, this was, of course, a time when Christianity was, was being persecuted. Um, so the burial was done somewhat hastily. Um, but tradition has it that afterwards, obviously, when uh, things calmed down a bit, the um, um, the Christians in Rome uh, 
ensured that that Peter would have a more dignified burial site, and the Emperor Constantine is said to have um, erected a monument over his grave. Um, and so we we have this tradition um, which comes to us. Um, and nevertheless, for a long time, um, you know, we just believed that the bones of Peter were underneath uh, St. Peter's Basilica on the Vatican Hill. Um, but, you know, there was no archaeological evidence for it. The, the only evidence we had was this, you know, this tradition um, and certain references that we could find in the writings of the, the church fathers. Um, but it was under Pope Pius XII in the 1940s. Um, that excavations were done under St. Peter's to uh, try to find archaeological evidence of this, this burial, burial site. And um, what they found is um, they found, uh, sure enough, the Macropolis, uh, where, where there were many people buried. Um, so that would have been the place where St. Peter would be. Um, and then directly under the high altar in the middle of that necropolis, um, or, or just, yes. Um, so in, in that necropolis under the high altar, there was a memorial building. Um, and, uh, in, in a niche found inside one of the walls of this memorial building, um, the, the archaeologists were able to discover some bone fragments, um, along with fragments of fabric, um, that had been dyed purple and was interwoven with threads of gold, indicating a hmm. royal burial. Um, and of course they investigated the bone fragments and they corresponded to the right, um, you know, the right era. And it was a, a man of, of, you know, the age of around, I think 65 or 70. Um, obviously you couldn't just from the bones know with absolute certitude that it's this individual. Um, but, uh, the, the bones seemed to make sense. They were found in the right place and, uh, nearby was an inscription, um, in Greek, Petros Eni, which means, uh, Peter is inside. Um, so all of this evidence served to corroborate, um, what we'd already known by tradition that there right underneath the main altar was St. Peter's burial site. And in, in fact, the bones themselves of St. Peter, um, so, so that's a very beautiful testimony of archaeology. Um, again, we had we had known this um, from various sources, such as, for example, in the ecclesiastical history of Eusebius, um, Eusebius of Caesarea. He was the first um, ecclesiastical historian writing in the in the fourth century. Um, so, a lot of our our knowledge of what happened in the first centuries comes from him, and he. Um, has a passage worth reading. Um, he says, it is recorded that Paul was beheaded in Rome itself and Peter likewise was crucified during the reign of Nero. Um, and the account is confirmed by the names of Peter and Paul over the cemeteries there, which remain to the present time. He's writing in the fourth century. And it's confirmed also by a stalwart man of the church, Gaius by name, who lived in the time of Zephyrinus, Bishop of Rome, uh, which is around the year 220 AD. And this Gaius, Eusebius continues, in a written disputation with Proclus, the, the leader of the sect of the Cataphrygians, says this of the places in which the remains of the aforementioned apostles were deposited. I can point out the trophies of the apostles, for if you are willing to go to the Vatican or to the Ostian Way, you will find the trophies of those who founded this church. Um, so it's an example of this this unbroken tradition. Um which, which has been confirmed by archaeology. Um, and while we are on the subject of archaeology and, and St. Peter, 
um, something that that I meant to mention in the previous conference, but I'll just say it now. Um, we we find not only in Rome but all throughout the Roman Empire um, many representations of Peter. Um, in fact, if we compare the total number of times that Peter is represented versus other apostles, we find Peter mentioned or, or uh, depicted um, at least 212 times, um, whereas the um, the one who is closest after that is uh, St. Paul with 47 depictions, but mm. still a vast disproportion. Um, and in, in addition to these 212 representations, which often include Peter you know, holding uh, the keys or sitting on a rock, um, uh, and, and reading a, a book or sitting on a, an Episcopal throne and teaching. Um, we find all these things. Um, but also what's very interesting is there are other representations of, of St. Peter under the image of Moses, um, who is, of course, you know, the lawgiver of the Old Testament, uh -huh. um, indicating that he's like a new Moses. Um, and, and so sometimes, for example, Christ is giving to Peter a scroll entitled the Law of God. Um, we find that about 30 different times in, in these ancient monuments. So um, therefore, just as Moses received from, from God the old law, Peter is receiving from Christ the, the law of God, the new law, which he is going to teach the whole church. Um, and then even more frequently, we find images, and, and this is fascinating, we find images of Peter, who's he's striking a rock with his staff, and waters are flowing out. Um, just like Moses struck the rock for the, the Hebrews in the desert um, to, to give them to drink. But in many of these depictions of St. Peter doing the same thing, um, who's drinking from the water? Well, it's Roman soldiers who are drinking from the water. Huh. Um, so that's, that's also corroborating um, this, this truth that Peter uh, taught and died in Rome um, because he's giving to drink to the Roman soldiers of the waters uh, which flow from Christ, the rock. Right. Oh, that is fascinating. Um, like like we mentioned before, I think in, in other episodes during this apologetic series, and like I've mentioned before, when I've been teaching apologetics myself, it's, is there is there video evidence? Is there, you know, first person documentary written evidence, you know, Peter's own handwriting saying, I was here in Rome. No, we don't have that. But it's very similar to, hmm. you know, a court of law, where you look at all of the preponderance of all of this stuff, archaeological writings from the church fathers, inferences from scripture, you put that all together. And is it true beyond a reasonable doubt? And I think anyone with a fair mind would say beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes. Peter was there in Rome and that's where he founded his church. Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, I'd even say that in a certain sense, Peter did say, uh, I'm here at Rome because we haven't, as, as I pointed out in that first epistle of Peter, you know, the church at, at ba Babylon saluteth you. And so does my son, Mark. Well, that's, That's actually true. pretty clear. So I'd go even farther than that, but, but basically yeah. it is, it is beyond the shadow of a doubt for sure. Yeah. So then father, I guess the next part of this conference would be, yes, Peter was there. Peter founded the church in Rome. That was where the primacy of the church was. Mm -hmm. The next problem you and I need to solve is do his successors, do the succeeding popes actually succeed Peter in terms of the primacy, or are they just then a bishop of Rome? And, and this is a later invention. I'm taking devil's advocate here. This is a later invention of the church sure. that this, this man who is um, the bishop of Rome now has all this ultimate power, or is this something that has continued since the very beginning? Right. Okay. So let's, let's allow the bishops of Rome to answer that question for themselves. <laughs> um, okay. and, and we'll find that they do pretty conclusively. Um, okay. We already have 
so, uh, you know, tradition has it that Peter was succeeded by uh, Linus and then uh, Cletus or Anacletus. Sometimes the order of those two is inverted. And then after them, uh, Clement, uh, who, who is, it seems he's named actually in one of St. Paul's epistles. That's another topic. But uh, Clement then is is the um, third or, or fourth successor of St. Peter, depending on, on how you count. Um, and he reigns towards the end of the first century. And... Um, we have a letter that he wrote um, to the Church of Corinth and which um, St. Irenaeus also talks about. Um, St. Irenaeus recounts that that there had been a problem, um, a dispute in the Church of Corinth and the people were re rebelling against their, um, their appointed leaders. Um, and so even though, you know, the Church of Corinth is, is at quite a great distance from Rome, um, Clement of Rome took it upon himself to write a letter um, and not just trying to reason with them and say, oh, come on, you know, be reasonable. Um, but but he's speaking to them with authority and he's commanding them to be subject to their proper uh, leaders, their, their pastors that have been appointed over them. Um, if I can just read a few quotations from that, um, from his letter, he writes, uh, you, therefore, the prime movers of the schism, submit to the presbyters. But should any disobey what has been said by Christ through us, let them understand that they will entangle themselves in transgression. You will certainly give us the keenest pleasure if you prove obedient to what we have written through the Holy Spirit. We are sending trustworthy and prudent men that they may be witnesses between you and us." So you see, he says, I'm speaking on behalf of Christ uh, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, you would better obey me or, um, you know, you will be guilty of transgression. And I'm sending men uh, along with this letter um, to be witnesses between you and us. So uh, to ensure that this is enforced, in other words. Um, and so... Um, St. Irenaeus himself, who, who relates this history, calls it a, a most powerful letter. And we're informed that, that this letter was read in the um, churches at Corinth, um, in, in fact, in the context of the liturgy, just like the letters of St. Paul and you know other New Testament writings were, were read at, during the, the liturgy. Um, so it was received um, and, and the um, Corinthians obeyed. Um, and so it's a powerful testimony that even you know before the end of the first century, um, the the popes in Rome who consider themselves you know to have succeeded to, to Peter, they are exercising an authority and a vigilance over the other churches, even those that, that are at a great distance. Um, we would sorry to interrupt you, Father, just to yeah, clarify, sure. we would probably assume that the church in Corinth would at the very least have a bishop overseeing that church, and so. If, so basically what you're saying is if Clement is writing this letter to the to the Corinthians, he's essentially overstepping that local bishop and saying, listen to what I'm saying. And if he doesn't have the primacy, he wouldn't do that. Right, exactly. Uh, now, I, I wouldn't say that he's necessarily opposing the local bishop there. In fact, what he's doing is commanding the people to be subject to their to legitimate pastors. Right. So, in fact, he's probably backing up the, the local bishop's um, authority. Um, right. But, you know, he, he has no, no, uh, he would have no right to interfere in that manner. And especially in, in this authoritative way, if he, if he didn't have the primacy. Um, right. So, uh, you know, on that, on that note, I would, I would quote once again, Harnack, who's our, our rationalist that we often go to because, uh, you know, uh, oftentimes Harnack, uh, although he was, 
far from being a believer, let alone a Catholic, he was, uh, he often scores points for us. So we'll, we'll let him do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, he, he, uh, in fact, I'll just mention in passing that one of, he, he's very well known in, in Catholic apologetics because, um, the, the rationalists they had for a long time, um, wanted to, um, set the date of the composition of the Gospels farther and farther back in history, saying, oh, they were probably written around the year 200 AD, because that would give enough time for the, you know, the collective consciousness of the Christian community to transform their image of, of who Christ was and what he did, and, and for all of these mythological elements to uh, be incorporated into the Gospel story. That's what, that's what the rationalist said, but Harnack himself, a rationalist, not a believer, um, through his research, he was compelled to push the, the data of the writing of the gospels, um, you know, closer and closer to the time of our Lord, to the point that he was assigning, you know, the, the synoptic gospels, uh, some of them to even before the fall of Jerusalem, before 70 AD. Um, mm. So he's, <laughs> he's, he's produced um, testimony for, for us in a number of points. But here on, on this subject, he writes, um, this letter of Clement uh, proves that already at the end of the first century, the Roman community watched over the far distant communities with motherly concern, and that at the time it knew how to use language, which is an expression all at once of duty, of love, and of authority. Mm -hmm. So... So yeah. it, it's, you know, it's t a testimony by an unprejudiced witness that, that, that this letter truly does represent an active authority, um, and of authoritative interference in a, in a distant community. So again, this is, uh, just recapping, you said this is the third or the fourth Pope, uh, Clement and, but he's at the end of yes. the first century. So he's within essentially the, the first generation of the church. Um, and Absolutely. this is already happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems, in fact, Clement seems to be mentioned in, in one of St. Paul's epistles. I don't have it, uh, you know, on, off the top of my head. I can't remember it. But um, right. so he would have known personally the apostles. Uh, what are the chances that he would have, um, you know, distorted <laughs> uh, so radically what had been handed down to him by right. making up a primacy that he didn't have? It's just and, and, and he's doing this in the living memory of the apostles. So right. it's a very powerful witness to the, the, the Roman primacy. So there are, of course, that's the first of the uh, witnesses that I, I'd call forward. But if there's no more, no more uh, questions or doubts on that, um, I would say I would bring forth some things in the second and third centuries as well. Um, towards the end of the second century, we have a famous controversy over the celebration of Easter. Uh, on what date would the church celebrate Easter? And already in Rome and many of the other regions, um, the custom was, as it is today, to celebrate Easter on the uh, first Sunday after the uh, 14th day of the Jewish uh, lunar calendar month, Nisan. Um, so that would be um, basically the, the first Sunday after the first full moon, uh, after the vernal equinox or the beginning of spring. Um, so that that was the, the tradition in Rome and elsewhere. But um, in Asia Minor, it would appear following the the example of um, the Apostle St. John um, uh, and as, as it was upheld by St. Polycarp and others, there was this other tradition of, um, well, first of all, they would liturgically celebrate the death of the Lord rather than his resurrection, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, so their Good Friday was kind of uh, our Easter Sunday. <laughs> it's a little bit hard to imagine that. Yeah. Um, and then it would always be done on the 14th Nisan, no matter what day of the week that might be. Um, so basically their big 
uh, Easter celebration, although it was celebrating our Lord's death, that was always uh, on on that calendar day. And it might be a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, not necessarily a Sunday. And the whole rest of the church is celebrating Easter on Sunday. So it was a cause of uh, no little confusion, especially when people from um, that that part of Asia um, – and, and I'm sorry, I might have mixed it up. It's proconsular Asia, actually, which is a part of Asia which was under the the um, in the Roman civil district, civil territory. Um, anyways, when people from there migrated to Rome, they often would kind of split off into their own group and celebrate uh, Easter on their own day, and so it was causing trouble even in Rome. So Pope Victor. Um, who reigned from the year 189 to 199. He was not pleased by this, and um, he wanted to solve the problem and to ensure uniformity throughout the church. So what did he do? He wrote letters to the bishops of all the you know surrounding uh, territories, asking them to convene councils, each of them in their own diocese, to discuss the matter and to report to him their findings. And he did find that they all celebrated um, Easter on the same date as Rome did. So these, these bishops in proconsular Asia were really uh, in the minority. And so then he decided after this consultation to command the bishops in proconsular Asia to adopt the practice of the rest of the church. And he even threatened them with penalties like, uh, you know, as, as severe as excommunication if they did not comply. Um, so we, we have that now. Our, our documentation is not uh, complete, so we don't know exactly what was the follow-up to that ultimatum. Um, but we know two things. One, we know that their victor is clearly, um, once again, asserting uh, an, an authority of the Roman Church over the other churches, saying that it's up to me as the Bishop of Rome to decide and to regulate the discipline for the universal church. And then secondly, we know that uh, you know, whatever wrinkles might need it, have needed to be smoothed over um, in the immediate aftermath of that decision. Um, it's, it's clear that um, sooner or later, that decision was accepted and and was adopted as the practice of the universal church. So Pope Victor's sentence, uh, his judgment did prevail. Right. And the, and the question of Easter and what date it should be celebrated on was never again an issue in the universal church ever again. <laughs> so had to do a little snarky. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> But it does well, show that at least he tried to get it all solidified at, at that point. Later on, things got a little haywire. Absolutely. But, yeah. Yes. <laughs> the whole uh, difference between the Gregorian calendar, or, or I'm sorry, the Julian ca calendar, which uh, derives from Julius Caesar, and then it'll be a, a pope, pope, Pope Gregory, I forget the exact number that follows his mm -hmm. name, um, who, who decides to update the calendar. And it, that actually is uh, another interesting um, display of papal power. Although it happens late enough in history that I don't think we're going to go into it in, in this episode. Right. right. <laughs> we're more focusing on the earliest uh, proofs of, of papal authority. Sure, sure. Well, are there any other anecdotes from from this early part of the church that, that we can look at that will kind of support the case here, Father? Yes. Yeah, so um, two other important controversies. In the early third century, um, first one is about absolution. There were some hardliners like Tertullian who wanted to restrict the power of the church to absolve from sins um, so that there were certain sins that, that were so heinous that, that they simply could not be um, absolved by the church in a person's lifetime. The person would have to um, die without absolution just in the hopes that God would have mercy on them anyways. Um, and, and so this was the opinion of Tertullian, um, 
which he expounded in his treatise, uh, De Penitentia. Um, and he excluded uh, idolatry, murder, and even fornication from the forgiveness of the church. Um, and so then we have, so as, as far as we know, we have a response from Pope Calixtus, who reigned from the year uh, 217 to 222. Um, but our knowledge of this response um, comes from another writing of Tertullian, um, De Pudicitia, um, where he's complaining about, um, well, I'll just give you his writing. He says, I also hear that an edict, indeed a peremptory one, has been issued. The sovereign pontiff, that is the bishop of bishops, issues an edict uh, saying, I forgive the sins of adultery and fornication for those who have done penance. So Tertullian, who's who's a rigorist, he's upset that that this um, this bishop of bishops has issued this edict saying, "I forgive these sins," um, saying in effect that the church has the power to forgive any sins whatsoever. You can't restrict that or limit that. Um, and so this this decree is, you know, it seems evident that he's referring to the Pope. Who else would it be? Um, so we attribute this decree to Pope Calixtus, who was reigning at the time. Um, and we see this as further evidence of, of his of his primacy, because he's being referred to, um, whether in good faith or ironically, he's being referred to as the sovereign pontiff that is the Bishop of Bishops. Even though um, he's upset about the ruling, he's still granting the authority. Or he's he's either granting it or he's saying, this is what you're setting yourself up to be by making this edict and saying we all have to obey it. So so either way, it, it argues for the Pope's uh, primacy, that this is the way that the Popes were operating. They were saying, um, I, I issue this edict. It's peremptory. So you have to conform. There's no there's no um, further appeal beyond this sentence. Um, so that's the absolution controversy. But in the same century, um, in the year 255 AD, we have the baptism controversy. And here there's no question uh, as to who is involved. Um, it's Pope, C Pope, Pope Stephen I, um, who, uh, so basically St. Cyprian, who's Bishop of Carthage um, in Northern Africa, he um, summons councils of African bishops. Uh, there's in fact five consecutive councils on this subject, trying to deal with the question of heretics who um, are converting to the Catholic Church. And the question is, they were baptized in heresy. Is that baptism valid? Can a heretical minister validly uh, um, administer baptism? And um, what these African bishops were concluding was, no, we don't think that this baptism is valid. We have to repeat it. Um, and it was actually St. Cyprian who writes to um, Pope Stephen I at Rome asking confirmation of the council uh, of these five uh, African councils and their, their decisions. Um, so even right there, you have, uh, you know, evidence of papal primacy. Why would he bother to ask uh, a bishop in a dist distant city to confirm what, what his own council has decided? But that's what he does. And Pope Stephen, far from just being a yes man and saying, oh, whatever you decide, that's good. He, he, <laughs> he says, well, wait a minute. Um, this is not the tradition, um, that we have at Rome. Uh, which of course is the 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 head city the the, the head of all the churches um he, he writes back you know nothing should be innovated except that which has been handed down um referring to the tradition of rome and so he says categorically no i'm, I'm not accepting your decisions um but rather you have to accept mine um he insists, uh, he reminds the African bishops of the rank of his episcopate and insists, I'm quoting, that, that he is the successor of Peter upon whom the foundations of the church were placed. Um, so, so insisting that, that 
he has the primacy and must be obeyed. Um, and St. Cyprian was not exactly very gracious in, in responding to this demand of, of the Pope. Um, but as with the Easter controversy, you know, there's, there's some fussing and, and, um, um, kind of, uh, <laughs> the bishops are throwing a bit of a fit, but they know that they have to comply. And so sure enough, um, it's Pope Stephen's uh, sentence, which prevails. And this becomes the universal practice of the church, not to rebaptize those who are baptized by heretics because they're, they're the, the baptism of heretics is recognized as valid. Oh, it's fascinating. So again, we have a Bishop from another place, like you said, from pretty far away, asking for help to figure out, is this the right way to move forward? And even if he's upset with the answer, then takes it and, and moves forward. Uh, absolutely. That's right. Um, and, and it's not the first time, or I should say, it's not the only time that we see, um, that when there are controversial cases, um, and, and people are unsure, you know, who to listen to or, or what to believe or think, um, the appeal is made to Rome and, and no matter where this, the controversy takes place. Um, if I can go on to mention some, some disciplinary cases that, uh, in, involve the intervention of the Pope, um, it was uh, commonplace that if, for example, a bishop considered himself to be unjustly deposed, uh, that is unjustly removed from his place. Um, for example, if, if, if a bishop had been considered by his, the, the surrounding bishops to have committed some kind of misdemeanor or to have fallen into heresy, they might summon a, a local council in which they judge him and depose him. Um, so what do you do if that happens? Well, uh, the bishop would appeal to Rome. Uh, appeal to the Pope to intervene and um, overturn the judgment that had been that had been passed, um, and we see this happening uh, from the most influential and powerful sees in the East, uh, from Alexandria and even from Constantinople. Um, so, first of all, we have um, Saint Athanasius who is expelled from his see, and he is the Patriarch of Alexandria, uh, and a usurper, Eusebius, takes his place. Um, Athanasius contests his his deposition, and both of them, both Athanasius and Eusebius, send letters uh, to to Rome asking to be affirmed as the the rightful patriarch of of Alexandria. And so this is this is Pope Julius the first who uh, reacts to the the appeals. Um, he reigned from the year three thirty seven to three fifty two, so that gives you an idea of of when this is taking place. Um, and first of all. Um, Pope Julius responds, he, he writes to the party of Eusebius, um, and, and keep in mind with this response that, um, Eusebius had not only usurped Athanasius's place, but also he and his partisans had been deposing bishops elsewhere. Um, so Pope Julius writes to them, do you not know that the usual procedure is that letters be first sent to us and that a just decision be passed from here? If then any such suspicion fell upon the bishop there, notice of it should have been sent to the bishop of this place. So in other words, you don't just go around deposing bishops without first consulting us. You have to consult us before you you take these kinds of measures. Um, so that's we, we derive that quotation from um, St. Athanasius's Apologia contra Arianos, um, so one of his, his writings. Um, but we also have an account of this same incident um, given to us by Socrates, not the philosopher of, of Greece, but an early church historian um, who continued the ecclesiastical history of Eusebius. And, and he records, um, at the same time, Paul um, 
the Bishop of Constantinople, Asclepius of Gaza, Marcellus of Ancyra, and Lucius of Adrianople, all having been charged with various offenses and evicted from their churches, arrived in the imperial city, meaning Rome. Um, there each presented his case before Julius, bishop of the city of Rome, and he, in accordance with the Church of Rome's special prerogative, sent them back to the east, backed up by commendatory letters. He restored to each of them his see, and at the same time reprimanded those who had been so rash as to depose them. Um, so, so it's not just the Bishop of Alexandria who appeals to, to Pope Julius, but even the, the, the Bishop of Constantinople and these other sees, they all go to Rome to be restored to their places. Um, you really couldn't ask for a more uh, clear attestation of, of the Pope's primacy. And it is interesting in that first letter that Julius is writing, that Pope Julius is writing to Eusebius, mm -hmm. he's saying, hey, there's this usual procedure that we need to follow, meaning there's a procedure that's already been in place. And this is what, before before the year 337 then? Exactly. There's a procedure and, they, and it's been yeah. going on. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So it's it's not like this is when this is all beginning. This is this right. is already the established practice. Absolutely. Um, and, and then just the one other instance of the same thing and, and another big, big name is St. John Chrysostom, uh, who's, you know, beloved by the Eastern Orthodox. Um, but he was the patriarch of Constantinople and yet he too, uh, like Athanasius, he had been unjustly deposed by council of bishops. Um, and so he wrote to Pope Innocent the first, this is, um, in the beginning of the fifth century. Um, he writes to Pope Innocent saying, I beg you to write that these deeds so unjustly penetrated have no force, as in fact they have no force by their very nature, and that they who have been caught acting in this unjust fashion be subjected to the penalties prescribed by ecclesiastical law. So, you know, what do you do if you're the patriarch of Constantinople, of Alexandria, and, and you've been unjustly deposed? Well, you go to the one see which is higher than those, which is, which is in charge of the whole church, which is the Roman see, and you ask for justice to be done there. Very interesting. That's, that's more of looking at the disciplinary cases of the time. But do we have instances from early on? I know we already talked about the, the rebaptism under heresy issue, but do we have any other instances of doctrinal questions being settled or people asking the Pope to, to settle some of these doctrinal questions? Absolutely. Um, let's start with Pope Iberius. <laughs> he is a controversial okay. figure, figure because, you know, he was, um, uh, so this is during the Arian crisis and Pope Liberius was in fact, um, taken into exile by uh, the Emperor Constantius, who was an Arian. And uh, there's historical dis dispute as to uh, whether Liberius in a moment of weakness might have subscribed to a semi-Arian uh, formula, which was ambiguous and so favoring heresy. Um, that's that's another question, uh, which doesn't need to be dealt with uh, currently. And it, it wouldn't be any objection to papal primacy because, um, you know, papal infallibility is not exercised when you're under uh, grave duress. It has to be a perfectly free act um, to be infallible. Um, and there was no, so, so papal infallibility is not involved here. This is not, not an issue. Um, but when Liberius returns to um, Rome, uh, having been set free from exile, the first thing that he does is to condemn uh, the Arian creed that had been published at Constantinople. And he receives 59 bishops who come to him to abjure their heresy because they had signed this Arian creed. Um, you know, and, and so, so he receives their abjuration. Um, and then Pope Damasus, his, his successor, um, in the year 369, he overturns, um, the semi, semi Arian Council of Rimini, 
um, which had been held and in, in which uh, uh, an enormous number of bishops had sub subscribed to a semi-Aryan uh, ambiguous formula. He overturns that council um, and he publishes a formula of faith that all of the Eastern bishops are obliged to subscribe to. And it's it's maybe the first time that we see uh, this happening, that, that a pope is, um, in order to put an end to heresy, he's publishing a uh, formula of faith and then obliging all the other bishops uh, throughout the world, even all, all the ones in the East, to subscribe to it. We'll see more instances of that as we move through these, these first centuries of, of church history. Um, so that's, that's Liberius, Damasus. Um, and then moving forward uh, in the 5th century, we return to Pope Innocent I, um, who, as we noted already, he um, uh, restored St. John Chrysostom to his see when St. John Chrysostom had been expelled unjustly. But he also was active in the doctrinal field. Um, at that time, there was a, a new heresy called Pelagianism, um, which denied the existence of original sin and the necessity of, of grace and baptism for salvation. Um, and Pelagius had already been summon, summoned before various bishops' councils, um, but um, he was very clever in maneuvering and escaping condemnation. Um, so some councils had condemned him, but others had had exculpated him, had said that, that, he, that he was fine. And so... Um, it was just a mess. And, and so what do, uh, what do people do? Well, there are two African synods, one at Carthage, one at Malev, which decide to appeal the matter, um, to, to Rome and ask Rome to settle the question. Um, and in reply, Pope Innocent, um, he begins by stating that the resolutions of provincial synods have no binding force until they're confirmed by the apostolic see, uh, meaning Rome. And, and then he explained, uh, what is the Catholic doctrine? He condemned the doctrine of Pelagius as heretical, and he excommunicated Pelagius. And and just to give you an idea of you know how this is received um, by the the rest of the church, well, we have Saint Augustine, who um, he was bishop of Hippo, also in in northern Africa, and he had participated in the the um, the local synod that was held in in Milev. Um, but when the Pope's decision is communicated to all the bishops there, um, we have the text of his sermon. So where he uh, announces this or publicizes this decision to his, his congregation in Hippo. Um, and so he, he says in his sermon, um, two synods having written to the apostolic see about this matter, the replies have come back. The question is settled. Uh, so he says, causa finita est. The question is settled um, by the fact that 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 the apostolic see Rome has replied. Um, that reply, because it's coming from Rome, it's it's definitive. And so that's where we get the um, uh, famous adage, Roma locuta est, causa finita est. Uh, Rome has spoken, the, the case is settled. That comes from St. Augustine. Um, yeah. Uh, another instance in the same time period, just, just about a decade later, you have Pope St. Celestine. Um, and this time it's not, uh, Pelagianism. It's, it's the Nestorian heresy. Nestorius is patriarch of Constantinople. Um, and he teaches, he starts teaching that, um, there are two persons in Jesus Christ. There is the word of God, um, who is, you know, the second person of the Trinity who dwells in Jesus of Nazareth 
um, Jesus of Nazareth is, is a human person and the word dwells in him as in a temple. Um, so it's kind of a, a remake of the Arian heresy where Jesus is just a man um, who has, you know, some special dignity or in whom God dwells in a special way. Um, uh, and then the, the consequence of that is that Mary is not the mother of God. Um, so this was the historian heresy. And it's fascinating um, if you follow the history of this heresy and the interchange of letters between Nestorius, patriarch of, of Constantinople, and uh, Cyril of Alexandria, and then Clement, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Celestine, the first of Rome. Um, you see this whole drama play out, and the, the primacy of, of the Roman pontiff is unquestionably acknowledged um, by all those who are involved. First of all, Cyril of Alexandria himself, who um, being closer to Constantinople, he's, he's um, the patriarch of Alexandria. He comes to learn quicker than Rome does of, of these doctrinal errors that are being preached. People are writing to him and saying, you've got to help us out. Um, but then he says, you know, he realizes that this situation is bigger and more problematic than, than anything that he can resolve personally. He's already tried to um, appeal to Nestorius's better nature and to uh, convince him to stop preaching these heresies, but Nestorius refuses. And so then uh, Cyril of Alexandria writes to Celestine. Um, he describes to the Pope the errors of Nestorius, and then he concludes his letter by saying, but we do not plainly and openly separate ourselves from Nestorius's communion before indicating these things to your holiness. Deign, therefore, to declare to us what seems good to you, and tell us whether we should be in communion with him for some time, or whether we can freely declare that no one should be in communion with one who thinks and teaches such things. For it is necessary that the decision of your holiness on this matter be manifested in writing, both to the most beloved of God and most loving bishops of Macedonia, and also to all the prelates of the East. So, in other words, I'm not taking a de definitive uh, d decision or step to, uh, you know, separate from Nestorius's communion. I'm not. I'm not doing that on my own authority. I'm waiting for your reply, and your intervention is needed here because I can't take care care of this on my own. Um, and, and Celestine writes back to Cyril. Um, saying, if we cannot correct Nestorius as we would like to, uh, we must remove him from the sheepfold. Um, uh, so let there be hope of pardon to him if he corrects himself. But if he doesn't, then let your holiness know, um, you who are about to provide for that church, uh, that is as, as Celestine's delegate, um, that he, Nestorius, is by all means to be removed from our body. Um, so it's, it's Celestine who's, you know, who has the authority and who's make, making the decisions, but because he's distant, communication is difficult. He's making um, uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria, his, his delegate and representative for the time being in dealing with Nestorius and says to Cyril, you're going to deliver this message to Nestorius and let him know that he has to recant or he'll, he will be excommunicated. And then another letter goes directly to Nestorius saying, uh, know plainly then that this is our sentence, that unless you preach concerning God our Christ, what the Church of Rome and of Alexandria and the whole Catholic Church holds, even as the most holy church of the city of Constantinople held perfectly up until you, and with a clear written profession given within 10 days, which are to be numbered from the day on which you receive notice of this, you repudiate this perfidious novelty, which strives to separate what the venerable scripture joins. You are cast off from the communion of the universal Catholic church. So, pretty clear. Pretty very, clear who's very, in charge there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. So, um, 
there we go. Um, so that's, <laughs> uh, I think there's just one more of these um, cases of heresy that might be worth bringing up before we move on to, to the next, and I think the final topic here. Um, so Pope Leo the Great in the year 450, so this is just 20 years after, um, he condemns the heresy of Eutyches, um, which is basically going from the ex one extreme, which is Nestorius's heresy, to the opposite. Nestorius held in, in Christ, there's two natures and two persons. Um, and that was corrected by insisting on the unity of one sole person in Christ. But then Eutyches, who's a, an influential monk in um, Constantinople, I believe, he um, he then concludes, okay, well, there must be also only one nature in Christ. Um, so perhaps some kind of fusion of the divine and human natures. So he starts his own heresy. Um, and this is around the year 450. At this time, it's Leo the Great, who is the reigning pontiff. Um, and so what happens here is basically, um, Eutyches, he receives the support, unfortunately, of, uh, Dioscorus, who is the patriarch of Alexandria. Um, and then the uh, Flavian, who was the patriarch of Constantinople, um, he actually condemned Eutyches as he, he, he was supposed to do. He did, he acted rightly, but then, um, he ends up being violently expelled from his see and, and dying in exile. And, as he's in exile, he, he appeals to Rome to enter, intervene. Um, and uh, Pope Leo, he replies to Flavian, um, the, the good and orthodox patriarch of Constantinople, um, by um, writing to him a document which is called the Tome of, of Leo, in which he approves Flavian's action against Eutyches, and he declares... Um, that which the Catholic Church universally believes and teaches about the mystery of the incarnation of our Lord. Um, that's how he characterizes his statements. This is a declaration of what the church teaches <laughs> and implying, of course, that I have the authority to, to determine what that is. I have the authority right. to state that. Um, and unfortunately, um, in the meantime, um, Dioscorus, the patriarch of Alexandria, had held his own council in Ephesus where he deposed Flavian, as, as I mentioned. Um, and, and in the meantime, um, the emperor Theodosius had appointed a successor to Flavian, Anatolius. And so there's this question, well, who is Anatolius and is he orthodox? Um, does he hold to the, the faith um, as Leo has defined it, or um, does he hold to the Eutychian heresy? And so um, what does Leo do, do? Pope Leo, he he refuses to recognize Anatolius, um, his elevation to the, the, the Patriarchate of Constantinople, until Anatolius clears himself of suspicion of heresy by signing Leo's tome or declaration of, of, of Catholic doctrine in the presence of his clergy and the people. Um, so... Leo writes, I think he writes to the, the Byzantine emperor saying this, these are the conditions for me to recognize your appointment of, of Anatolius to the sea. Um, and Anatolius does comply with, with this demand and signs the declaration of, of faith, which is imposed upon him by yeah. Pope Leo. Um, uh, yeah. That's fascinating. Again, these, these are all, again, this is the last one that we've talked about here is at 450. So within the mid fifth century, but all the other ones prior as well. This is all, this seems to be kind of a, a set standard that the Pope has this authority among the other bishops, among the other provinces, churches, you know, whatever, whatever uh, word you want to use. 
Yes, I, I mean, I don't think that you can study um, early church history in depth without seeing this this papal primacy time and time again, uh, uh, you know, asserted by the popes themselves, but also accepted um, and and put into practice by the rest of the church, um, and and you know, sometimes with uh, reluctance, sometimes you know, fighting back, kicking and screaming because they don't want to go along with it. But, um, you know, that's, that's natural. Just like in a family, you'll find kids who, who are just tough to deal with and they don't want to obey dad. But, you know, the disobedience is not the same, uh, as, as denial that, that a person has authority. Um, and so sometimes you'll find the Pope's orders met with disobedience. Um, but always in the end, uh, the Pope is obeyed and his, his primacy is submitted to. Right. We are seeing in some of these documents and, and even in some of the things that you've been talking about here, Father, these meetings of local bishops, these synods, these you know group meetings uh, discussing a lot of these matters. Um, when does the Pope get involved in you know overseeing these meetings, these councils or synods and so forth? Uh, great question. So um, keep in mind, well, first of all, the... Um, Papal primacy, uh, the Pope's intervention in churches and especially distant churches is not easy in the first centuries. Um, not, not for many centuries, in fact, because uh, it's not like today where the Pope, if he wants to communicate a decision, he can just, I don't know, paste something on the, uh, on the Vatican website or maybe even put out a tweet from Pontifex, uh, you know, right. uh, on, on Twitter. So uh, communication was not easy back then. And oftentimes, um, you know, it, it would take easily months for a letter to go from Rome to, say, Constantinople or to return. Um, and so that makes the exercise of the Roman primacy much more difficult. Um, uh, where am I going with this? So um, that means also that when there were general councils, um, it, it, it so happened that the first eight general councils were all held in the eastern part of the empire. Because, well, first of all, because that's where the trouble usually was. Um, you don't see heresies uh, cropping up in Rome and then, you know, the bishops of the East having to go over to the West and sort out the problem. It's quite the opposite. Um, and, you know, you can even ask an Eastern Orthodox uh, this and if he, if he knows even his own version of, of church history. Um, he'll have to admit that the popes were always right and the heresies were always in the, the Eastern seas. Um, the, I, when I say seas, I mean, you know, um, not, not, not like the ocean, but the, uh, right. <laughs> Eastern bishoprics, if you will. Um, right. so, um, that's why often it was most advantageous to have the council, uh, the general council take place in the East because that's where the problem was. That's where you needed to address it and sort things out. So how did the popes participate? They, they participated by sending their legates. Um, so you don't have a single um, general or universal council that the pope presides over in person until I think it's the first Lateran council, you know, in the maybe the 1100s. I don't have the date exactly right, but um, uh, the first the first eight of them are all held in the east, and the pope presides by by his legates. And for the first two, which would be um, Nicaea and the first council of Constantinople, um, we don't have. Uh, as ample documentation, we we do have a record, a tradition that Pope uh, St. Sylvester sent two legates to preside over the Council of Nicaea, um, or at the very least, they were there and they approved of, of the proceedings. Um, it's not exactly clear who presided. It seems like Constantine himself might have because he 
you know, there was a, a problem of the emperor thinking that um, he was basically a kind of secular pope. Anyways, um, but but so so we don't have as clear evidence for Nicaea and um, the first council of Constantinople. But um, things become very clear with the third general council, which is that of Ephesus, convened in the year 431. Um, and from then onwards, uh, everything is, is much clearer. Um, so, and this, this council involves people that we've already spoken about, um, Pope St. Celestine, St. Cyril. Um, they ended up deciding that the most effective way to, to deal with the problem of Nestorius was to convene a council of bishops there to take care of the matter. And Celestine appoints St. Cyril as his legate until the arrival of his own uh, papal legates. So he sends two legates um, to preside over the council in his name. And um, he instructs them to be present at the proceedings and to put into execution our previous decisions. That's what he says to them. So, so note that, um, in fact, these these councils, the Pope um, does not send his legates there to consult with the other bishops and to come to a decision, um, you know, on their own. But rather, the Pope himself has already decided what is the the correct doctrine and what is to be done. And he sends his legates to carry out his instructions to ensure that they're, they're complied with by the Eastern bishops. Um, and so one of the delegates, um, Philip, he's a priest, he explains to the fathers at the Synod, um, he says to them, and this is recorded in, in the Acts of the Council, he says, no one has the slightest doubt in fact, everyone has known it for centuries now that our most blessed Saint Peter, Prince and Chief of the Apostles, pillar of faith and foundation of the Catholic Church, received the keys of the kingdom from our Lord Jesus Christ. He continues to live and to rule to this very day and always will in the person of his successors. It is his present successor and vicar, our holy and most blessed Pope Celestine Bishop, who has sent us to this holy synod to make up for his absence. And we don't have any record of any protest on the part of the council fathers. That's read to them by the the papal legate, and and there's there's no pro no protests whatsoever. This is this declaration is accepted by the bishops, and they sure enough they fall through in condemning Nestorius and proclaiming the the doctrine which which um, you know Pope Celestine has already affirmed in his letters, which have which are read out at the council and to which the council fathers uh, give their assent. Oh, interesting. Uh, and it's not too much longer until we have another council, just about 20 years later. Yeah. Right? Yes. The, there's a whole lot of problems in the, in the East in, in these yeah. centuries. So um, as I mentioned before, the, the heresy of Nestorius is quickly followed by that of Eutyches, which is called a monophysitism. I, I'm hope, I hope that I'm saying that right. But it basically means that there's only uh, one nature in our Lord. Um, and so... Um, what happens there? That's that's held. That council is held in the year 451 to take care of this this problem, and um, it's Pope Leo who is the reigning pontiff at the time, and he um, sends his delegates and he requires his senior delegate, the Bishop Pascasinus, to preside over the council, and so Pascasinus explains to the council. Uh, the instructions sent by him who is the head of all the churches. That's how he refers to uh, the Pope. And he demands um, that Dioscorus, who's that naughty Bishop of Alexandria that we spoke about already, um, that he be removed from his place in the council. 
um, since he's only there to be judged, uh, not to participate mm. in the deliberations. Um, and this is complied with. And, and the Pope also uh, requires that, uh, I think it's Theodoratus, um, who is a bishop, uh, on the the orthodox side uh, be restored to his dignity so um you see you know the the, <laughs> the legates arrive and they they give the orders and uh the, their orders are complied with um there there's of course lots of drama if you read the history of the council and it's not like everything is is flowers and and uh sunshine but um uh you you see that the the papal authority always does prevail in the end. Um, so on the second day of the council, uh, the legates read the tome of Leo, which we've referred to before, uh, his exposition of the Catholic faith. And here um, we have in the acts of, of the council um, that the council fathers, they r respond to this tome of Leo, which is read to them by the papal legates. They respond with an acclamation saying, it is Peter who says this through Leo. This is what we all believe. This is the faith of the apostles. So they say Peter has spoken through Leo. Um, they're, they're recognizing Leo as Peter's successor and endowed with, with P Peter's charism, being able to confirm his brethren in the faith. Um, and Leo has set forth in his tome the doctrine that in, in Christ there are two natures, united, inconvertible, inseparable. Um, this is Leo's phrasing, and his legates ensure uh, they, they require the council fathers to adopt this phrasing into their profession of faith, which they do. Um, and at the end of the council, the council fathers write to Leo um, saying, you let us as the head guides the limbs of the body. That's what they write to the Pope. And mm -hmm. they lament in this same letter about how Dioscorus, um, the Bishop of, of Carthage, raved insanely against even him to whom the care of the vineyard has been entrusted by the savior that is even against your apostolic holiness so again they're they're repeating what what has already been said that uh whatever the pope says even in the person of a legate or a representative at a council they're going to be listening and it is the words of peter himself Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, the same charism that Peter had is, is continued in, in his successors. Um, so, so there you are. That's, those are the first, uh, two ecumenical councils where we have, um, a, uh, very, very clear acknowledgement of papal supremacy, papal, um, primacy. Um, this is, you know, seen obviously throughout the, the whole history of the church and the other councils as well. But one, a third one does stand out in particular. Um, this is the fourth council of Constantinople. It's also the eighth general council. Um, this is the one that involves uh, Photius. Um, and this is the beginning of the troubles with the, the Eastern Orthodox. And, and uh, there's a temporary schism, which is headed by Photius, which is uh, resolved at this council. Um, and the decision of the Roman pontiff is accepted by the bishops at the time. Um, but unfortunately, Photius has sent a, a precedent for the East by his temporary rebellion against the Pope. And uh, years later, in, in the year 1054, um, when the schism is, is accomplished for good, or, or rather, I should say for bad, <laughs> um, right. the... the, the um, um, Patriarch of Constantinople at the time, Michael Cherularius, he is going to invoke the same arguments that Photius did to justify the schism, um, which in, in involves the accusation of, uh, against Rome of various heresies, 
um, some of which are um, do do truly pertain to doctrinal questions like how the Holy Ghost proceeds, whether from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son. That's that's an issue which is brought up by Photius to justify his rebellion, and then brought up again by Michael Cherularius. Um, uh, but uh, also, th this is mixed in with a lot of other silly things that just have to do with custom, like the fact that the uh, Latins don't, the, their clergy do not wear um, beards. They don't have beards like the Eastern clergy do. Um, they celebrate the Eucharist with unleavened bread. And these things are, are called by Photius uh, heresies. So <laughs> it's a little bit sure. juvenile. Um, kind of sounds uh, like so Catholic Twitter a lot, calling everything heresy. <laughs> Exactly. Sorry. Except in those blessed days, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in those blessed days, however, it wasn't so easy to spread these things yeah. around. So it <laughs> took a lot more work. But uh, nevertheless, the human nature has not changed. Um, right. So, anyways, that's kind of to set the, the stage. And so, the Eastern Orthodox they don't themselves um, recognize uh, this council as an ecumenical council. They only recognize the first seven, not the eighth, because they take Photius to be a saint, and and so they take his side rather than the Pope's side on this. But nevertheless, we can talk about this this council, even if they don't accept its authority. It's nevertheless another important historical witness to the papal uh, primacy, because um, what happens in this council. Is that um, so? Pope Adrian the Second, who has sent legates to this this council uh, to deal with the the Photius problem, he requires the bishop of the council the bishops of the council to subscribe to a profession of faith that had been drawn up uh, by Pope Hormisdis, um centuries ago, um, uh, in a in a similar situation of conflict between Rome and, and Constantinople. Um, and he obliges the bishops of the council to sign this formula of, of her business. Um, in, in fact, well, I'll, I'll quote to you some of the texts and then explain a little bit more its, its origin. So the text says, um, among other things, in the apostolic see, the Catholic religion has always been kept unsullied. Following, as we have said before, the apostolic see in all things and proclaiming all its decisions, we endorse and approve all the letters which Pope St. Leo wrote concerning the Christian religion. And so I hope I may deserve to be associated with you in the one communion which the apostolic see proclaims, in which the whole true and perfect security of the Christian religion resides. Um, so, so this, you know, this formula, um, speaks eloquently about the the primacy of the apostolic see the see of rome and all the bishops um at this council are required to sign um but that's not the first time that 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 this has happened in fact um going back several hundred years the year 518 um there was a schism um on the part of the patriarch of constantinople acacius um, who had, I believe he had even presumed to try to excommunicate the Pope. Um, and um, uh, he had since then died, but uh, there was still this issue of separation. Officially, uh, the, the Eastern Empire was uh, out of communion with Rome. And um, so Pope Hormisdis sent uh, a letter through delegates to the uh, Byzantine Emperor, Justin, uh, as well as the Patriarch of Constantinople, who at the time I believe was Severus. Um, and he required um, the Emperor and the Patriarch of Constantinople and all the bishops of the East to sign this, this formula 
the formula that I just read to you. Um, so this is the first time in the year 518 that, that they do it. Um, they all sign. Um, and then it's repeated uh, centuries later at this fourth council of Constantinople in the year 870. Um, so you look at all this and you see how many times have the, the, all the Eastern bishops acknowledged, whether orally as, as it's recorded in the acts of the, the councils or even uh, by, by, by their signature, by subscribing to a document, how many times have they acknowledged papal primacy in, in very explicit terms? Um, so, you know, if, if you were arguing from the Eastern Orthodox side, you'd have to admit that even your own leaders had time and time again, uh, acknowledged this thing is true. Right. That's fascinating. And, and again, we're just stopping at, at 870 there. Uh, there are plenty mm -hmm. more examples as we go through history, but the idea here was just to kind of focus on these early parts of the church through, um, you know, through the writings between the various churches, through the Pope's um, interest and participation in councils, etc. that this whole concept of papal primacy, it all existed from the very first days of the church. Yes, there's, there's certainly an uninterrupted tradition um, to, to, for which we find historical evidence going all the way back to the first century, to that um, the, the intervention of uh, Pope uh, Clement the, the first in uh, the affairs of the Church of Corinth um, at the end of the first century. That's um, just one piece of an uninterrupted succession of, of acts of the popes asserting uh, their primacy and of that primacy being accepted and even appealed to often when there are cases, difficulties, heresies that need to be resolved. Um, so the, the evidence is, is really overwhelming. And of course, you know, as you say, we just focus on this first part of church history because, um, you know, we have in mind, uh, obviously, you know, Protestants, uh, question papal primacy, but also the Eastern Orthodox. And for them, it's these first centuries of the church, um, where the church was still united, um, that, mm -hmm. that we have to look and we have to point out these texts and these passages and these events to them and say, um, look, even your own, um, leaders and your own saints, um, you know, St. John Chrysostom, St. St. Uh, Athanasius, um, they all subscribed to um, papal primacy. They appealed to the Pope um, when when there were difficulties. And so, you know, if if your own um, forefathers accepted this, why don't you? Right. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, Father, this has been great. Thank you for not only this episode, but the previous one. I know it took a lot of time to put these all together for us. So thank you for that and for uh, giving us this great kind of encapsulation of the of the pope and and his primacy so thank you father i appreciate it my pleasure andrew thank you for your stamina and for our listeners as well i hope that uh um, they've been able to persevere to the end with us but i think it's all for the best it's it's these things are fascinating and uh good to know absolutely thanks father have a great week okay thanks you too Thanks for listening to this episode of the apologetic series on the sspx podcast and on our youtube page please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time.